how do you get published? This is a question that I get fairly frequently. In fact, a listener just asked me this question last week. And there are two different ways of getting published. The traditional way and the independent way. And there's pros and cons of both. And I know authors who are making lots of money using both methods. (laughs) Both methods are hard. So don't listen to anyone who tells you one way is easier than the other. Both methods are doable. Both methods require hard work. In this episode, I'm going to walk you through the process of getting published with a traditional publishing house like Simon & Schuster or Random House. And I'm going to give you some tips and tricks along the way. And if you're not yet decided about whether you're going to go traditional or independent, this episode is going to be very helpful. It should also be helpful if you know for sure you want to get published the traditional way and you want to know how to do it, you're about to learn exactly how to do it. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr., former literary agent and CEO of Author Media, and this is Novel Marketing, the longest-running book marketing podcast in the world. This is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and change the world with writing worth talking about. So why go traditional? Well, I have a pros and cons of traditional publishing episode on my other podcast, which tends to focus more on publishing topics, and it tends to be a little bit more trad published focused. We do some indie episodes there, but novel marketing has a majority of independent uh, listeners, so we tend to do more indie episodes here. And in the spirit of fairness, I also have an episode on the pros and cons of indie publishing. So if you're if you're really trying to decide between one or the other, I do encourage you to listen to those episodes. But let me give you a couple of quick pros of the traditional method. Uh, one is that there's more prestige in getting published traditionally. Uh, this is particularly important for certain genres like literary fiction or nonfiction. It's less important in other genres like sci-fi or romance. Readers in those genres don't care, whereas literary fiction readers they do care. <laughs> so uh, another advantage of traditional publishing is that it's less money out of pocket. It gives you access to the New York Times bestseller list. And the New York Times bestseller list isn't actually a bestseller list. They curate and they pick who the winners are. They you know, take into account how many sales a book has, but uh, they also exclude books for political reasons, and they also exclude books for other kinds of reasons. And one of those reasons is that they don't support independent publishing as a general rule. So the New York Times has a strong bias against indie authors. So if being a, quote, New York Times bestselling author, unquote, is important to you, traditional really is your only method. Indie authors can be listed on the USA Today bestselling list, and I think occasionally they can even get listed on the Wall Street Journal bestselling list, but um, it is very rare for an independent book to make it through the selection board of the New York Times. A lot of people don't realize that the New York Times is not actually a bestseller list. It is a curated list of book recommendations. Uh, Seth Godin had a great episode breaking down uh, the New York Times and how it works in his most recent episode of Akimbo. Another advantage of being traditionally published is that it gives you access to the prestigious awards. Again, a lot of these awards only allow royalty-receiving authors to uh, be eligible for the award. It also gives you better distribution into brick-and-mortar retail. Uh, In a general rule of thumb, and this isn't absolutely true, but it is generally true, uh, traditionally published books make most of their money in paper. And independent books make most of their money in ebook. And more money is spent overall on paper books than on ebooks. Ebooks are growing, especially indies, and in certain genres, ebooks are really dominant. And so uh, it really depends, right? If you're writing military science fiction, uh, you know, going indie, there's not much loss. But if you're writing literary fiction or if you're trying to write a business best-selling book, being traditionally published is really pretty important because people don't tend to read business books in ebook form. They prefer paper or audio. So that's just a kind of a quick overview of some of the advantages of traditional publishing. There's a lot of more advantages than what I've talked about. There's also a ton of disadvantages. There's a lot of downsides of being traditionally published, as there are downsides of being independently published. Uh, there, it's hard work wherever you go, uh, but it also can be very rewarding and very lucrative. I know authors, like I said before, are making good money doing both. So I have seven steps of the traditional publishing process. And step one is prove yourself. Large traditional publishers spend tens of thousands of dollars publishing your book. They spend money on editors, cover designers, print runs, sales teams, which are people who interact with the thousands of bookstores around the country and around the world to get your book stocked on the shelf. It's not enough to be on the computer of the bookstore. You actually have to have a human being calling the bookstore buyer and convincing them to shelf your book. Uh, And marketing people 
and more all cost money. They also have lots of overhead. The big publishing houses are based in New York where the rent and the taxes are really high. So they just spend a lot of money and they have to cover that money with the books that they sell. Uh, Most traditional publishers lose money on half of the books they publish. So not only do you have to cover all the overhead, all the rent and the taxes, but you also have to cover uh, all of the books that are losing money. (laughs) So the reality of the traditional publishing business is that, you know, maybe half the books lose money, maybe 40% of the books break even, and then you make just insane money on the bestsellers. The where the money is in traditional publishing is with the very top books. It can become like printing money. Uh, you know, if you, when you have a Harry Potter best-selling book and you're spending a dollar and a half printing a hardback and you're selling it for $25 and you're selling millions of copies, the money is just incredible. It, it's raining from the heavens, but it only happens with bestsellers. So the whole uh, traditional publishing model is really geared around hits. It's not, and, and by hits, I mean home runs. It's not geared around base hits, kind of blocking and tackling the, you know, books that sell just a few copies consistently. They're they're not really interested in that because that's not where the money is. And so what traditional publishers are looking for is they're looking for proven authors. They, you know, if an editor takes a risk on an author who's not proven and that author's book loses money, the editor often loses her job. And you'll notice that turnover at publishing houses is incredibly high. In fact, it's so high that often the team you start with is not the team you finish with. <laughs> I've seen so many of my clients and authors I've worked with, they'll go through Many, many uh, marketing people, many, many editors. I was working with one author, a New York Times bestselling author, been published for decades, and he couldn't remember how many marketing people he'd worked with at his publisher, like dozens. It's a revolving door. And it's a revolving door because there's very little tolerance for failure. And so all of this to say, publishers are really hesitant to sign an unproven author. So how do you prove yourself? Well, there's two ways to do it, depending on what you write. So let me talk about the fiction path first. Uh, The way you prove yourself as a novelist is you write an entire novel. Then you save it to a flash drive and you put it in your safe deposit rocks and then you write a second novel. (laughs) So uh, you need to have a completed novel to bring to a publishing house. Uh, Publishing companies are not interested in a first-time author with an unfinished book because they don't know if you can even finish a book. You may not have it in you and the only way to prove that you have it in you is to do it. So you need to bring a finished book before they'll even talk to you. And then you need to prove yourself, not just by finishing the book, but the story needs to be the best story at the conference. And that includes the faculty. Remember, traditional publishing is about hits. People want the very best book. They don't want the second best book or the third best book. They want the very best book. And so you have to be really, really good with your craft. And that's why we created the five-year plan. It's an intense program to get you to this level of craft where you are writing the best story at the conference, at least in your genre. And that really is how you prove yourself with fiction. Your platform is important, and they do take that into account, but it's not nearly as important as the quality of your writing. And so if your writing isn't the best, then most traditional publishers, especially the successful ones, they're not going to be interested. Now, for the nonfiction, the path is very different. How do you prove yourself with nonfiction? You do it by building a platform. (laughs) The way you show that your idea has resonance is to find the people your ideas are resonating with and to gather them together as a following. And we have more about this on episode 237. Readers are changing what they read and what to do about it. This episode is all about resonance and how to find resonance with your readers. If your ideas have resonance, then you will have a following and that following will be your platform. And there are a lot of ways of building a platform, a lot of ways for people to follow you, but there's one way that the quality of your platform is measured, and that is the size of your email list. I was talking with an author a couple weeks ago who was in the process of submitting her book to a distributor. So she was forming her own publishing company, and she was going through the traditional path, working with traditional distributors and sales teams, and the number one question they asked on their application form to to take her as a client. The very first question on the form was, how big is your email list? (laughs) And if you don't have a good answer to that question, traditional publishers stop listening to what you have to say after that if you're writing nonfiction. So if your answer to how big is your email list ends in the word 100, the traditional publisher won't listen to anything after that. And it really doesn't matter what you say because the rebuttal is, 
well, if your radio show was so popular, why do you only have 900 people on your email list, right? So whatever you say, it's like, oh, I speak to tens of thousands of people. Well, if you speak to tens of thousands of people, why don't you have them on your email list? If you can't convince them to give you their email, well, how can you convince them to give you their money? And publishers really have a email is the test bias right now. So the size of your email list is really important. It's why I've been talking about it so much on the podcast. Sometimes I feel like I talk about email too much, but then every time I look at what's going on in the industry, I'm like, I don't know if it's possible to talk about email too much because of just how important email is right now when it comes to selling book. Uh, My upcoming course, Obscure No More, is going to be all about how to build a platform. I mentioned it last week. We're about to open up the enrollment for the beta program. So keep an eye out for the official announcement. Like I said, masterminds get first access, then patrons, then people on the email list, and then I'll make the for real announcement here on the podcast. And that's how you prove yourself. You either do it by um, developing your craft or you do it by building a platform, uh, depending on whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction. So step two, now that you've proven yourself, you write a query letter and a book proposal. A book proposal is like a business plan for your book. It is kind of a, a case for why they should acquire your book. And it really is a business plan. They're actually going to take your book proposal and they're going to put together a profit and loss statement internally based off of what you put in your book proposal. And so the acquisitions editor has to make a case inside the publishing company that we're going to spend $50,000 on this book between the advance and all of our expenses and we're going to get back $100,000. And here's how I think those numbers work. And so uh, you need to be able to convince them (laughs) that your book is really going to bring in that kind of money. So some elements of a book proposal, you'll share your book's outline, you'll talk about your target audience for the book, you'll talk about the platform for the author, you'll mention the marketing plan, endorsements that you have, the author's publishing history, if you have any books out, you'll want to mention those and how many sales those books have had, and then at least one sample chapter, sometimes multiple sample chapters. And a query letter is like a one-page executive summary of the book proposal. In fact, a lot of people take the first page of their book proposal, which is an executive summary, and they use it to create the query letter. These are easy to make, and there is only one method that pretty much every author uses to make a book proposal, and that is to read a book on how to do a book proposal. (laughs) You can get books and book proposals for $10 on Amazon, and it's the way to do it. The book that I recommend is How to Write a Book Proposal, the insider's step-by-step guide to proposals that get you published. I read the third edition of this book and loved it. And my paper copy is all marked up with underlines and I filled pages of notes with ideas that I had while reading it. And as you know, listening to the podcast, I do not read a lot of paper books. And so it is a big deal for me to say that this is one of the dozen paper books that I read and I really liked it. It's on its fifth edition now. I haven't read the fifth edition, but uh, I can only assume that it's even better than it was. My only beef against this book is that there is no audio version, but I guess it's worth it. Um, I also have a couple of episodes on my other podcast on book proposals. We have Book Proposals 101 with literary agent Steve Lobby and also Book Proposals Tips and Tricks with Chad Allen, and I'll have links uh, to both of those episodes in the show notes. So if you're wanting to learn more about book proposals, you can listen to those episodes, but ultimately you're going to want to buy a book on how to put together book proposals. You can also get them at the library. It's a very standard practice. So I'm not going to say too much about book proposals, but I do want to give you one tip. And this is like my pet peeve of book proposals. So back when I was a literary agent, a change that I made on almost every client proposal was to split the platform section and the marketing section. So a lot of authors combine these, and I think it's because they don't understand the difference. A platform is the following that you already have. It's the number of people who subscribe to your email list or your podcast. It's how many people already know you, like you, and trust you. Uh, You you can also think of it as a list of your past successes. The marketing plan is the list of things that you plan to do in the future. And a lot of authors think that they can compensate for having no platform by describing all of these amazing things they plan to do in the future. And the rebuttal is simple from the publishing company. Why aren't you doing these things now? So it's okay to have a great marketing plan. In fact, in the book launch blueprint, A lot of what our students do in that course ends up being a really solid marketing plan, but a good marketing plan can't compensate for the fact that you have no platform. You've got to prove yourself. You've got to show that you've got a track record. Traditional publishers really put a lot of stock in this because 
they lose so much money. <laughs> Even with platforms, they still lose money on a lot of the books that they publish. All right, so that's the end of step two. You've got your query letter and your book proposal all ready to go. Step three is to get an agent. So what is an agent? A literary agent is someone who represents you to publishing companies. Uh, and these days, most of the big houses only take agented submissions. And once people could write with word processors, the number of books being written every year went up by like a thousand percent, maybe a hundred thousand percent, and the publishing companies just got swamped. You know, back when you had to write a book on a typewriter, the act of writing a book was so hard that if you wrote a book, you could at least get a publishing house to look at your book. But once Microsoft Word came out and desktop printers came out, it got so easy to write a book comparatively, and so many more people were writing books that now agents uh, are required just to get a meeting. So you send your masterpiece to a publisher, they just put it straight into the trash. They don't even look at it unless you have an agent first. Agents do more, though, than just submit you to publishers. They're part lawyer, part hype man, part coach, and part sounding board. They really do kind of guide you through the publishing process, and they are on your team. It's really good to have somebody on the publishing world that's on your team, and the agent only gets paid when you get paid, at least if they're a legit agent. There's a lot of people who will take your money, uh, but the legit agents only get paid when you get paid, and they only get a percentage of what you get paid, and that percentage is 15%. No more, no less. <laughs> that is the industry standard. So do you need an agent? Yes, you need an agent. Publishing companies take advantage of the kinds of naive authors who don't have agents. Publishing houses don't care about you. They don't care about your book. They care about money, and they will pay you as little as they possibly can. And authors with agents make more money than authors without agents. And you're like, but the agent takes 15%. How is that possible? And it's because 85% of a watermelon is a lot more fruit than 100% of a grape. And this is one of the things you can kind of tell somebody who gets it and they're like on the path to success and somebody who doesn't. And somebody who's not on the path to success, they're like, I've got to keep 100% for myself. And it's like, it's not about the percentages. It's about the actual money. <laughs> it's like 85% of $100,000 is a whole lot more than 100% of $1,000. And the best thing that can happen to you if you don't have an agent is that you get underpaid. The worst thing that can happen to you is that your whole career gets ruined. And I've been in the industry long enough that I've seen publishing houses do just terrible things to authors, ruining their reputation. And you often won't hear agents sharing their horror stories of what publishing companies are doing to authors because the agents have to still be on good terms with the publishing company, right? It's hard to talk about all the terrible things HarperCollins is doing to their authors and then be like, hey, HarperCollins, I've got a new author I want you to represent, right? <laughs> but now that I'm no longer an agent, I can tell you, publishing companies do terrible, terrible things if they can get away with it. And another advantage of having an agent is that, especially an agent with an agency, is it also becomes collective bargaining. If the publishing company does something bad to you or they do something bad to your agent, that agent doesn't just represent you. That agent also, an agency, maybe represents hundreds of other authors. And that represents a counterweight of power to the publishing company. So you really have to have an agent these days if you're going to work with a traditional publishing company. There's, I, don't, I can't think of a single large publishing company that I would send an author to without an agent. They'll just get devoured. So what do you look for in an agent? <laughs> There's a lot of agents out there. And I recommend that you look for an agent with uh, connections to the gatekeepers and decision makers. Anybody can call themselves an agent, but not everyone is friends with the people in power. Uh, you also want an agent with enthusiasm about your book. They need to get it and they need to believe in it. A lot of people here use the word passion. Passion means suffering, and I don't think you need an agent who will suffer for your book, but they need to be enthusiastic about your book because ultimately they are selling your book to the publishing houses. And if they aren't excited about your book, how can they get the publishing house excited about your book? And it's also important for them to have an understanding of the market, and they need to have offerings that match your track record. So let me talk a little bit about offerings. I would say three tiers of uh, literary agency. Now, the first tier is a brand new agent. This is the easiest agent to get, right? Somebody starts off as an agent. They accept everyone who comes, or they accept a lot of the authors who come because they don't have any clients and they need to get some clients. And this is also the least useful kind of agent, especially if it's a new agent that's not with an agency. So sometimes what will happen is agencies will bring on a new agent and the 
other agents in the agency will give that new agent their kind of smaller clients or clients that are dormant or whatever, and they, that agent kind of gets something to start with. But a brand new agent without an agency is literally starting from scratch. And making money as an agent is very backloaded. So you're doing work for months, helping authors put their puzzles together, sending in pitches, sending in queries, talking with acquisitions editors, and you're not getting paid for any of that until the contract is signed, depending on how long negotiations can go. That's months and months. And so you have to have a lot of runway. And the downside of working with a brand new agent is that they may run out of money before they run out of runway, (laughs) so uh, before they get off the ground financially. So just keep in mind, there's a risk with a new agent. One advantage of going with a new agent is that if you are their first success, you become their darling child and you can get really white glove service because every agent ultimately starts off as a new agent. And I'll say this was the case uh, for me with our real estate agent. So we random hired our real estate agent when we got our house kind of at random. And it turned out she's the superstar. She's like the number one agent in the whole real estate agency, which is the biggest one in Austin. And, you know, she's grown and she has other agents that work with her now. And we knew her when she was small and we're benefiting from that now. And the same thing can happen with the literary agent. So I'm not saying don't go with a new agent. Just realize they are not offering you the same thing as what you would get with a tier two, what I call a mid-tier agency. So let's talk about tier two real quick. This is the kind of agency you'll find at writers' conferences. They often have a solid stable of mid-list authors and maybe a handful of bestsellers. Often there's multiple agents with the agency, and they have uh, solid connections and a foot in the door with all of the major publishing houses. And then we have Tier 3, which is a top-tier agency. And um, this is the kind of agency that you really have to be invited to join. They don't go to conferences. They don't take pitches. Uh, You don't call them. They call you. And at this level of agency, every author is a celebrity. And since they're expecting every book to be a six-figure book or more uh, in terms of how much money it's bringing in, they offer a lot more services to their authors. So they may provide a virtual assistant for the author. They may provide a social media manager, maybe marketing services, maybe speech booking services, and potentially a whole lot more. So the more you make in this industry, the more the rules change. And, And you'll hear people who are only working at the bottom levels and they may not even know what the top tier is and what kind of white glove service you can get if you're writing you know hits that are selling hundreds of thousands of copies there's enough money there where you're really treated differently it's like flying first class <laughs> or even in a private jet if you're a really top author and typically this kind of agency is the kind of agency you trade up to after your second best-selling book so your first best-selling book is a fluke the second best-selling book is showing that This is an author who's going to be here for a while, and suddenly that's when the rules change. So don't worry about going for a top-tier agency right away. You have to have already written a best-selling book or, you know, maybe starred in a movie or be a super celebrity some other way. All right, so how do you get an agent? The dirty little secret in this industry is that a lot of success in publishing is about who you know. Uh, This is not the meritocratic system that you might have thought, or at least it's not a meritocratic system based off of writing skill alone. Part of the meritocracy is based off of networking and relationships. So you have to be good at making the right kinds of friends. And I've talked with a lot of agents, and most of them get most of their clients the same way, and that is referrals from their existing clients. And I would guess that maybe 70 to 80% of authors get signed with an agent after being referred by an author. So what do you do? You make friends with other authors. We have a bunch of podcast episodes on how to do that in the show notes. In fact, we have a whole category or a tag rather on networking. You can learn how to network, how to make friends and influence people. So you make friends with authors and you have them introduce you to their agent. And once that happens, the agent will want the query letter or the proposal, which you'll have ready to go which is important because you want to strike while the iron's hot. You don't want to get that request and be like, oh yeah, I'll get you the proposal in a week or in a month. After that point, life has happened and they the moment will have passed. There's a lot to be said about taking advantage of the good moments. You know, Striking while the iron's hot is a metaphor that's kind of lost its punch. But if, if you've ever watched a blacksmith, when the iron is just out of the fire, it takes much less effort on the part of the blacksmith to mold and shape that iron. 
Whereas if the iron is cold, you can be banging on it as hard as you want, and maybe you're not making hardly any difference. And so you really have to be ready for those moments. So a lot of success in this industry is doing the preparation ahead of time so that when you're presented with a hot iron moment, you're able to strike and you don't have to wait. Uh, now, there are other ways of getting an agent. Uh, you can send a proposal to their slush pile. You can meet them at a conference. You can win a contest. Those, those are just a few ways to do it. And we have several episodes on getting an agent. So if you want to learn more about how to get an agent, you can listen to episode 32. What is a literary agent and do you still need one? Episode 82, how to get an agent. And episode 83, how to get an agent with Rochelle Gardner. So that's kind of a two-part episode that we did. One that was with me and my co-host, Jim Rubart. In the second, we brought in a literary agent and discussed things from her perspective. Once you have a literary agent, you're ready for step four, get a publisher. So uh, the first thing you're going to do in this step is you're going to work with your agent to polish your proposal. Uh, good agents will help you tweak your proposal and really make it pop. And this is really useful because agents see thousands of proposals a year and they really know how to spruce up a proposal. So you did your very best work to get your proposal to the agent and the agent's then going to help you make it even better. And I really encourage you to listen to your agent here. Uh, she really knows what she's talking about. This is her area of expertise. Every agent pretty much knows how to make a proposal better. While this seems like magic to people who aren't literary agents, it is really straightforward for people who are literary agents because if you're a literary agent, book proposals and book contracts are like your whole life. <laughs> you're staring at one or the other all day long. I mean, that's a little bit of an overstatement, but only a little bit which means this is your native language. They are your interpreter here. And so don't act, don't think you know more than the literary agent on how to make the proposal good. You can have a dialogue and you can explain your position and you talk through it and you may uh, learn things, right? Because while you know your book better, the agent knows the market better. So you talk it through, you wrestle, and you get a just a pristine, shiny proposal. And then you're going to put together a pitching strategy. And different agents will have different strategies for pitching your book and to publishers, and it really depends on kind of how big they think the book is going to be and which publishers are going to be the right fit. Sometimes it's about specific editors that the agent knows at specific houses that are looking. Because sometimes, you know, an editor will be like, we're looking for a book about XYZ, and you have a book on XYB, and the agent's like, hey, if we can tweak your proposal just a little bit and swap out B for Z, suddenly you are exactly what agent or editor so-and-so needs at this publisher and we will get fast-tracked and you're like oh yeah i can make that change no problems you make the tweak right that's the sort of thing that your agent will help you with and generally speaking the strategy is you pitch to the biggest publishers first and you give them first dibs uh, because they're the ones who are able to spend the most on the advance and the most on the marketing right if you get several offers from big publishers for a hundred thousand dollars and there's no reason to get bids from medium-sized publishers that never offer advances over $50,000, right? Doesn't make sense. Whereas if all the big publishers say no, then suddenly 50,000 sounding good since no one offered you 100,000. You'll get the best money and the best offers if you can get multiple publishers bidding against each other. The episode that I did on social proof, link in the show notes, really applies to publishers. Publishers want authors that other publishers want. So if you can create a feeding frenzy, you can get them bidding against each other where you end up with an advance two or three or ten times higher than the initial advance that you were offered. Because the publishers don't like it when they get scooped by the other publishers. So if you're seen as a hot commodity, which again, proving yourself with really good craft, really good platform, and a really good proposal. The stronger those things are, the more of a hot commodity you'll look. And you can create a feigning frenzy that can really turn into a lot of money. And will give you good leverage in the negotiation. And the agent will be the one who sends the pitches to the publisher. And the agent's also the one who receives the rejection letters. Almost no author gets no rejection letters. So the agent's going to receive <laughs> rejection letters. Even if you know the agent sends to the big five publishers and three of them say no and two of them get into a bidding war and you make a million dollars, you still got three rejections. So this is one of the things your agent can do for you, right? The agent can be like, hey, I'll just let you know once a week if you got rejected or not and I won't send you the letters or I will send you the letters. And you can inform your agent like, I want to get you know, the every note from every publisher right away, or I can't take that rejection. Just let me down easy. That's the sort of thing an agent will do for you. So uh, the agent is pitching at what's called an acquisition editor. And the acquisitions editor is the person at the 
publishing company who takes incoming submissions. And this is the first gatekeeper. But once you win over the acquisitions editor, she becomes your advocate. So this is an interesting thing. She's your enemy, but once once you win her over, she's your ally. And what that acquisitions editor will do once you win her over, she will take you to pub board or publishing board, which is the high council. So every publishing company has a high council that decides if your book is worthy. And they gather together in a secret room and they make determinations. And then they will tell the acquisitions editor yes or no. The acquisitions editor is there in the room. And while this is a mysterious meeting, we do have an episode all about it. Selling an editor so she can sell to the pub board with Alan Arnold. So Alan Arnold was in the room where it happened for 500 books. And he talks about his experiences in the high council chamber. One of the things about when you get a rejection from the acquisitions editor, you never know if that's the real reason or not. And, you know, maybe they rejected you because they disagree with your politics. They may not say that in the rejection. They may give some vague, generic reason. And one of the things your agent can do is kind of help you parse the reason they give you and help you determine if that's the real reason or not. Uh, Just because your agent can't attend this meeting, it doesn't mean you can't influence it. So the agent's not there. The acquisitions editor is there, but the agent's not in the room where it happens. And we have a whole episode on how to influence the publishing board and get them to buy your book. And we'll have a link to that episode in the show notes. Once the pub board says yes to your book, you move on to contract negotiations. So exciting. So publishing contracts are complicated and everything is negotiable. So you'll want to talk with your agent about what's important to you. Do you care about foreign rights, film rights, audio rights? Some authors really care about those things. Other authors don't. And so you pick your battles on what you're going to fight for. The default thing that your agent's going to be focused on is the size of the advance. And this is for several reasons. One, it's how agents get paid. They get 15% of your advance. They want to get you as big of an advance as possible. Also, the more that publishing houses spend on advances, the more they tend to spend on marketing. Now, the rule of thumb is that they spend about the same on the advance as they do on marketing. But I will say this includes the salaries, overhead, et cetera, of the marketing people. So a $5,000 advance is not actually going to result in much marketing activity that you can see. Most of that just gets washed away in the overhead. Whereas a $100,000 advance is also going to result in potentially a $100,000 marketing campaign which you will really see. You'll, you'll notice a $100,000 marketing campaign. That creates a lot of noise, a lot of attention for your book. So there really is an argument for getting as big of an advance as possible because the more invested your publisher is in your book, the more invested your publisher is in your book. Now, there's an old saying in business that if you owe the bank a million dollars, the bank owns you. But if you owe the bank $100 million, you own the bank. <laughs> They're so invested in you. They need you to succeed for them to succeed. Suddenly you have a really good alignment. Publishers often have a boilerplate contract that they send, or rather they have two boilerplate contracts that they send. One terrible one that they send to unagented authors, and then a less terrible one that they send to agented authors. These contracts are at least initially mostly about protecting the publisher, but remember, everything is negotiable. This is their kind of opening offer and it's a lowball offer to kick off negotiations. So don't just accept everything that the publisher gives you. And your agent will really help you navigate this because certain publishers really care about some things more than others. And it's really helpful to know somebody who's seen this contract before and knows what what the easy wins are. And while the agent's going to take point on the negotiation, don't forget that you are the one making the final call. So don't let anyone rush you into signing anything And don't sign anything that you don't understand. And I'd also encourage you to understand the basics of negotiation. So while your agent is doing a lot of the negotiating, you need to understand the fundamentals of negotiation. And there's a couple of really good books on negotiation I'd recommend. Uh, Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life uh, Depended on It. This is a book I've read by a hostage negotiator. And it reads like a thriller. It's a really fun book and also teaches a lot of really powerful principles of negotiation and he took what he learned you know negotiating with terrorists into you know the corporate world getting an mba and just totally own those people (laughs) because his techniques are better and i believe it Uh, the other book is getting to yes negotiating agreement without giving in this book is written by if i remember correctly it's a um, un negotiator 
So this is a guy who's ended wars. So very different approaches, right? Ending wars, negotiating a peace, you're dealing with sophisticated parties on both ends. Whereas Never Split the Difference is written by a guy who would negotiate with, you know, a bank robber who's got a gun to the head of a hostage. Similar principles, but also some different principles. And these two books together will really give you a better education, I will say, than I got in business school. These two books on the topic of negotiation. All right, so now uh, you've negotiated your contract, you've signed your contract. Step five is you get paid. So in traditional publishing, authors get paid fast, often before the book is published. So how much do you get paid? Well, author advances range from $10 on the low end to $65 million on the high end. There may be some larger ones than that, but that's the largest advance I've ever heard of, $65 million. So how big an advance you get is an indication of two things. It's an indication, first, of how confident your publisher is in your book. If they expect to sell a lot of copies of your book, they'll offer you a big advance. If they are taking a flyer, they're just taking a shot on your book and they're not expecting much, they're going to give you a small advance. And you should be wary because that small advance and that lack of commitment becomes, for your next book, your record of sales. So if your first book is not a success, it can tarnish the rest of your career, which is why I preach don't publish your first book first, (laughs) going back to the book marketing Ten Commandments. Uh, But how big the advance is doesn't just indicate how confident they are in the sales of your book. It also indicates how successful your publisher has been in the past. A publisher with no money is a publisher with a track record of failure. You need to keep that in mind. There's a lot of small publishing houses out there with no record of success, and they make their money off of selling copies to the author's friends and family. They spend as little as they can, and they're on the tiny shoestring budget, and they're expecting failure, you know, monetary failure, with every book. And these small publishers need you to make them successful. And they don't have anything to make you successful. They don't bring anything to the table. I really believe in almost all instances, small publishing houses, the ones that can't afford big advances, are the worst of both worlds. They don't do the marketing for you, and they keep you from getting the sales data so you can do the marketing for yourself. It is the worst. And I've talked about this a lot on my other podcast. And since I've been doing that, now that I'm not an agent anymore, and I can say what I think without fear of repercussions, because there's nothing the publishing companies can do to me. They don't own me anymore. Since I've done that, the only complaints I've gotten have been from the people who run small publishing houses who don't like me trashing on them. And I have received so many horror stories from authors who are like, no one told me what a trap small publishing houses are. And they didn't do any marketing. They didn't give me any data. My book was a failure. And now none of the big publishing companies will publish me because I have a track record of failure. And it's the stink they can't get out of. And they're forced to go indie. And I'm all for going indie. But they could have gone indie with that first book. And often they're going indie with the second book in their series or the third book of their series. And they're stuck with this first book. It's just like a weight on their ankles because it's with a small publishing house and they can't get it back. Or sometimes they buy it back from the small publishing house. They have to spend a fortune buying their own book back. It's just the worst. So do yourself a favor and go with a publishing house that can actually afford to publish your book and bring something to the table other than knowing how to submit your book to Amazon, which is not hard. (laughs) It's not hard at all. There are hundreds of books you can get on how to submit your book to Amazon. You can do it in an afternoon. There's no reason to give up all of the data and all the money on your book for somebody to do that for you. All right. So when do you get paid? Uh, The money for a traditional advance is paid out ahead of time. You know, that's why it's called an advance. It's an advance of book sales. And it's not uncommon these days to see the advance broken up into chunks. So often you get one chunk on signing and get another chunk after this rough draft is turned in and maybe a final chunk after edits are finished. Uh, Again, this is one of those things that are negotiable. So if you're like, I've got to get the money right now, that's one of the things your agent might be able to negotiate on your behalf. So Again, pick your battles. If you don't care when the money comes in, you may you know, fight for different parts of your contract. You know, but typically, the author gets the whole advance before the book comes out. Otherwise, it's not really an advance. And this is an advance on royalties. And so we should probably talk about how royalties work. The typical book royalty for a traditionally published book is between 50 cents a copy and $1.50 a copy. Now, you'll occasionally see less and more than that, but I would say most fall pretty close to that 80 cents to a dollar per copy range. And you never hear industry people talk about royalties in this way. 
though. <laughs> they don't like talking about dollar amounts because it really seems small. Instead, you'll hear them talking about percentages. Percentages of what, you ask? Well, it depends on the contract. It's in those fiddly details of the contract, whether it's a royalty on the gross sales or a royalty on net sales. Sometimes it'll be a royalty sometimes on net, sometimes on gross, and it's very complicated. This is why it's so important to have an agent to help you navigate through a contract. Because if you're not careful, there's little tricks that publishers do. And agents know these tricks that will make it look like the author's getting paid a lot. And then they're not getting paid a lot because of these little fine print tricks. And there's a, a famous story of uh, Madonna. And part of the reason why she was so successful as a musician and has made so much money as a musician when a lot of other musicians who are as successful as she was didn't make nearly as much money as she was is that she had a certain kind of humility and confidence that is very rare I would say with musicians so when Madonna would get a big contract from a record company and those are just as predatory as publishing companies she would sit down with her lawyers and go through the contract sentence by sentence and she would not move on until she understood that sentence. And she found all of the gotchas in her contracts and got them all taken out and she understood everything. And that requires a lot of humility and a lot of time. You get a 20-page or 50-page contract from a publishing company or from a record company. There's a lot of little technical details in that. And she had the humility to go through and wouldn't move forward until she understood. And because she was willing to do that and spend those two days, she made hundreds of millions more dollars than she would have otherwise. So learn from Madonna and don't sign something you don't understand. Another thing that will often happen with royalties is they're paid on a sliding scale. Uh, so an author might get you know 10% royalty for the first 25,000 copies sold and then maybe a 15% royalty on the next 50,000 uh, copies sold and then maybe a 20% royalty on the next 100,000, right? And part of this reflects the fact that a lot of the upfront costs of the book are covered, right? There's a lot of fixed costs for producing the book. The cost of the cover designer, the cost of the editorial process, your advance, a lot of those are fixed costs, and the variable costs on a book are really low. The cost to print a book, even a hardback, is only a dollar, dollar and a half per book if you're doing an offset printing. If you're doing it print on demand, it's three to five dollars, but traditional publishers tend to do offset printing. So they're getting their books really, really cheap. And so they're able to give a bigger royalty to their authors once they get into the big money units. And, and I just use those percentages as e examples, but those aren't totally uncommon percentages. And then often you'll have a different set of percentages on ebooks. So you'll get you know, a certain percentage on paper books and a different percentage on ebooks. And then uh, another percentage on audiobooks, right? And sometimes the audiobook percentage is really low. If they bring in a narrator, the narrator might get a cut of that. All of this are details in your contract that you'll want to negotiate. Have I mentioned before that it's important to have a literary agent? <laughs> so many ways an author could get taken to the cleaners in ways the author doesn't even know it. And this is what breaks my heart. I'll talk with authors who are with publishing companies and they think they're being treated well because they have no idea all of the subtle ways the publisher is putting their hands in the author's pocket and pulling out money. And if the author had had an agent, the agent would be there slapping the hand of the publisher and be like, don't do that. And just the presence of the agent would cause the publisher to, to be more careful about where the publisher puts uh, their hands. Um, one other element when it comes to royalties that I should talk about is brand value. So the stronger the publisher's brand, the lower the royalty they tend to pay. So the royalty for a dummy's book or a love-inspired romance is going to be lower than the royalty from their brandless competitors. But very few publishers have strong brands. It's very uncommon, really. You know, dummies is really an outlier. And they're able to pay such a low royalty because readers know what dummies means. When they see that yellow cover, they're like, ooh, and they'll often go straight for that book on the shelf. And because of that powerful brand, they pay a lower royalty. With most publishers, though, the readers have no idea who the publisher even is, right? Think about the last book you bought. Who was the publisher of that book? There's a chance you don't know. And you're in the industry. You're the kind of person who listens to publishing podcasts, and yet even you don't know the names of the publishers. So those publishers have to give a higher royalty because they're not bringing a brand to the table. Conversely, the stronger the author's brand is, the higher the royalty and the bigger the advance. And one of the most powerful phrases you can use in a negotiation is, I don't need you, right? The ability to walk away is so important to negotiating. And, you know, you can't always, right? The, in the book I read on the hostage negotiation, you can't walk away and be like, okay, you can kill 
kill the kid. You know, no, you know, so you can't always walk away. But if you can, it gives you a much stronger negotiating position. And the stronger your brand is, the easier it is for you to walk away. Now, there's two ways of saying, I don't need you. One is to have multiple bidders. This is the best from a traditional publishing perspective because, you know, the one publisher is, you know, being a real stickler on the ebook royalties and you go to the other publisher and they're like, hey, you know, we'll meet your price on the ebook royalties. And, and then they bid it. And then the other one's like, okay, we'll come up on the ebook royalties. And you're like, okay, well, what about the audio rights? And you go back and forth and you get them bidding against each other. That's one way to do it. The other way to do it is having the ability to publish independently. So if you have your own publishing company, it can become, in essence, one of the bidders, so to speak. And you'll see this more with more established authors. They have a, a record of traditionally published books, and maybe they start to go hybrid where they're independently publishing some of their books, and they become their own bidder. And they're like, I know what I can make as an independent author, so you're going to have to give me a higher advance if you want me to stay traditional. So all of that kind of is a part of brand value. And real quick, I should also explain how advances work. I know this is kind of technical, but it's really important. So an advance is an advance on royalties. So let's say you get a $20,000 advance for your book. And so during the process of writing your book, you get 5,000 and then 10,000 and then another 5,000. So by the time your book has gone to press, you've got $20,000 in your pocket. And let's say in the first year your book is out, you make $15,000 royalties. That does not mean you get another check for $15,000. That $15,000 goes against the $20,000 they've already paid you. You still owe, quote unquote, your publisher those remaining $5,000 in royalties. Now let's say the next year your book is out, you earn another $5,000 in royalties. At this point, you have earned out your advance. And this is the term, earning out, <laughs> which means now any additional royalties you get come to you. So you've now paid back your debt, so to speak, of the advance, and now new royalties go to you. And different publishers pay at different frequencies. Typically, it's three to six months, sometimes more, sometimes less. Again, negotiable. This tends to be a, a point publishers really fight on. If you understand cash flow, if you've been to business school, you'll understand why they don't want to pay you quickly because they need that money internally for their operations. But, you know, you never know. Sometimes you couldn't get them to concede on this. For authors who write evergreen hits, this is a book that continues to sell year after year, right? A book like What to Expect When You're Expecting, right? Every year new women get pregnant. Every year they buy that book again uh, or new women buy that book. And so the author of that book gets a check every year or several times a year for work they did decades ago. I will say this is uncommon. Only about 10% of books earn out their advance. Uh, so 90% of books, the author's only money that they get is the advance. And this doesn't mean that you're failing. Sometimes authors will just keep getting bigger and bigger advances. They never earn out the advance, but the advances are really large. So if you get a $100,000 advance and you earn out 90,000 of that and the publisher offers you another contract for 150,000, you're not unhappy that you didn't earn out your advance. And I know authors who have written dozens and dozens of books traditionally and never earned out any of their advances and yet they keep getting contracts. So don't believe that a book has to earn out its advance to be profitable. That's not how the numbers work. All right, so now you have gotten paid or you are getting paid. You've written the contract, you've gotten paid, you've signed it. Now it's time to write your book. <laughs> That's right. If you're nonfiction, you haven't written your book yet. Remember, in step one, uh, we proved your abilities not by actually writing the book, but by creating a platform. And this is because you don't actually need a finished book to get a traditional nonfiction contract. You do for fiction. So uh, you novelists can skip this part of the process because you've already done this work. But believe it or not, you don't even necessarily want to have written the book coming in to the nonfiction process because the editor at the publishing company and your agent potentially will want to make tweaks to your nonfiction book to make it easier to sell, easier to sell to the publishing board and also easier to sell to readers, right? Remember that example of changing the book that was about XYZ to being about XYB? That minor tweak might mean whole chapters that won't get written and different chapters will be written in their place. And if you've already written the book, you're going to fight a lot harder with those chapters that you wrote. Whereas if it's just, you know, lists in an outline, you're more willing to concede and more willing to kind of mold the book for what the market wants, or at least for what the publisher thinks the market wants. And so uh, now is the time when you write your book. And I will say the bigger your platform is, 
if you have a big enough platform, the publisher may actually provide the person to help you write the book. <laughs> so for really big platform authors in nonfiction, a publisher often will hire a ghostwriter or an as-told-to writer or a manuscript developer to work with the author on developing their book because the platform is just so important in nonfiction. Now, I will say it's not uncommon for nonfiction authors to take content that has already been resonating with audiences and use it as the starting place for their books. So speakers may use transcripts of their speeches. Bloggers may use blog posts that were really popular. And podcasters may use their show notes or, or even transcripts from their podcasts. And there's a whole process to doing this. It is a very legitimate process. In fact, uh, if you look at the popular nonfiction books, almost all of them existed in some form before they became uh, nonfiction books. <laughs> so they're either blogs or articles or something. And we have an episode all about that process, uh, episode 132, how to blog your book. And if anyone tells you, oh, you can't blog your book ahead of time uh, because then it won't get published, they don't understand how the market works. They're, they're working on an old uh, first rights, second rights mentality that doesn't take into account the realities of of owning your own online platform. So a lot about what I talk about, it all works together. And this is why I think it's commandment five of the book marketing and 10 commandments is own your own platform is so important because you don't have to worry about first rights and second rights if you're publishing on your own blog. All right, so now that you've caught up with the novelists and you've written your book, it's time for developmental edits. And this is where traditional publishers really add value to the book. Now, traditional publishers will hire a developmental editor and pay them. So you don't pay for the editing of a traditionally published book. This is one of the perks of being traditionally published. You don't just have somebody edit your book. You have a really good person who edits a book. Traditional publishers have a team of editors. They know who's good. They vetted them, and they will match you with an editor who they feel is the best fit for your book. A developmental edit is an edit of the ideas of your nonfiction book, and it's an edit of the plot or your fiction book. So you can think of this as an edit of the chapters and the paragraphs. It's a big picture edit. And this is the round of editing that really gives traditionally published books the better reputation when it comes to quality. And if you're going to go indie and you want to compete on quality with traditionally published books, you need to budget money to spend on a developmental editor. And the good developmental editors are not cheap. Very many indie authors skip this whole round of editing and they go straight to the next round of editing and it really hurts their book. And another advantage really of traditional publishing is that the developmental editor gets the final call in some ways, right? They can keep sending it back for revisions and they don't get pushed around. And, and that's, I feel like for many books really makes it better. So you're done with your developmental edits. You've got the ideas honed. You've got the plot lines all in the right place and the characters all in the right way. Now the next round of edits is called copy edits. And this is what most people think of when they think of the word edit. It's an edit of the sentences. It's an edit of the words. And this is more than just fixing typos, I will say. A good editor is going to reduce the number of unnecessary words and will teach your words to sing. <laughs> and I, I was just astounded when I was writing my book. I worked with an excellent copy editor and we'd already had, you know, the research team go through it and the developmental editor was giving feedback and the copy editor really made the writing better. And it's often just by removing really careful strategic words and just really tightened the prose in a really strong way. So copy editing is also really important. And then there's another round. It's called proofreading. So, so far in the process, you've been trading Word documents with your editor and your copy editor. Sometimes you'll have just a single point person with a publishing company, but they're interacting with different people internally. Again, different publishing companies work differently. But once you're done with the copy edit, it's handed over to somebody who does the typesetting. Now, in ye olden days, typesetting was actually taking metal type and setting it on a tray and pressing it into the paper. <laughs> That's not how we do it anymore. Uh, now we have a PDF of what the book is going to look like because the magic of digital printing. And what you'll get as the author is a PDF like facsimile of what the final paper book is going to look like. And making edits at this stage is kind of a hassle, but it's better than having a book go out with typos. So you'll want to go through and sign off on this. And, and sometimes it's literally signing off. You're like initialing every page and saying, I stand by this. There are no typos that I see. And it, it's crazy because you wouldn't think with proofreading any issues would come up, but they always do. Sometimes the errors are introduced during the typesetting process, 
but more often just rearranging the way the words are on the page. It makes certain typos easier to notice. Benjamin Franklin supposedly uh, did his editing right there on the printer. So he would just put the metal letters right there on the printer, which is reversed back in the olden days when they did it with metal type. And he would just write his stuff right there on the printer. But he was also a printer first and an author second. And he ran a publishing company. I would not recommend that. Uh, You want to have as little done in the proofreading phase as possible. And that story may be apocryphal in a quick Google search. I couldn't find it. So, uh, but I have read his autobiography, so I might have gotten it from there. I may also just be misremembering it. Benjamin Franklin gets a lot of quotes attributed to him that he didn't say, and hopefully I'm not attributing an editing practice that he didn't do. So now that you've proofread your book, it's time to launch your book. And this is step seven, launch your book. So while indie books mostly make money online as ebooks, traditionally published books mostly make money offline as paper or online as paper. People buy a lot of paper books from Amazon. So it's important to understand kind of how this works. Many traditional bookstores sell a book on consignment. This means that they don't actually buy the books from the publishers. They sell the books for the publishers. The publisher owns the books (laughs) until it's sold. And this means that if a retailer can't sell the books, they just send them back to the publisher. This is what's called a return. And for most new books, bookstores will order the books and hold them on the shelf for 30 days. And any book that doesn't, or any copy that doesn't sell in those first 30 days, they send back to the publisher. And if a book is getting a lot of returns, the publisher may have the bookstore just tear off the first page and just send that back and just throw away the rest of the book. So if, if a book is really a dog, the publisher doesn't even want to pay for the return shipping. They're just like, we're losing money on this book, we're trying to cut all of our losses. And don't try to get any marketing efforts out of a publisher who thinks your book is a dog. Uh, so what this means is that those first 30 days for a traditionally published book are critical. They are, I can't understate how important those first 30 days are. And it's why book launches are so important. A poor launch means that books are returned and the publisher is stuck with stock it can't sell. And if this happens, the publisher often gives up on the book and the author. Remember, these book publishers are publishing two or three books a week, sometimes a dozen books a week. And by the time the 30 days are up, they've already published you know 50 more books that they're also excited about and you are just forgotten. A strong launch, on the other hand, and the bookstores, instead of returning books, are ordering more books. And when your publisher sees that more books are being ordered, your publisher will spend more money on marketing. And soon a virtuous cycle develops. And this is part of the reason why some books sell 100 times more books than other books, because a little bit of success early can turn into a lot of success later. And soon your publisher is sending you on media tours and you're on bestseller lists and everything changes. And it's all about the launch. And the author is primarily responsible for the book's launch. And this is why our course, the Book Launch Blueprint, is so important. Because if you're traditionally published, you've got to have a strong launch. It's helpful if you're indie published. But uh, if you're independently published, you're not going to give up on your book if it has a weak launch. You're going to continue working on the book. Whereas if you're traditionally published, you've got 30 days. And it's either a success or it's a failure. And your publisher is going to make that determination typically after that on day 31 they're either going to say we're going to this book is worth investing more money in or we're going to move on to the next book so the book launch is really strong the course book launch blueprint that we put on every year gets incredible feedback from authors both indie authors and traditionally published authors and we're planning to do it again either winter or spring uh, of 2021 so at the beginning of the year of 2021 we don't have a launch date yet But uh, we do have a wait list if you're curious or you want to learn when the book launch blueprint goes live. This will be our fourth year to do it, and it's bigger and better every year than the year we do it before. Uh, Our sponsor today is the five-year plan for becoming a best-selling author. Uh, I crafted this plan with best-selling and award-winning author James L. Rubart, who's actually now been inducted into the Hall of Fame. So he really knows writing, and this course is all about helping you develop your craft of writing. It's designed for novelists. Uh, I would say primarily, but it's really, it's just for novelists. You you could go through it if you're nonfiction, but I wouldn't recommend it. And it's all about becoming the best writer at the conference, becoming the kind of writer that when agents look at your manuscript, they're like, I need to call this author right now. I don't want another agent 
getting on this. I want this for myself. And you want the publishers to think the same way. And it's a lot of work to get that good. And it takes most authors 10 years to get there. We have this intense course that will get you there in five, but it's still a lot of work. Becoming the best writer at the conference requires a lot of work. But if you're wanting help with that, that tells you what to be doing in each quarter where you're getting the most bang for your effort, uh, you can find out more about the five-year plan at authormedia.com courses. And if you're a patron of the podcast, you save 50% on the course. So becoming a patron first is definitely the way to go through the course and save money. And you can become a patron for as little as you know $3 a month or $10 a month, and it will save you $100 or more on the course uh, to be a patron. Speaking of patrons, our featured patron today is Katie Harvey, author of Believe It and Behave It, How to Restart, Reset, and Reframe Your Life. Learn how to kick your inner shame and hatred to the curb. Whatever your personal setback, Kate will help you find new opportunities to make yourself better and stronger than ever before. And Kate, thank you so much for being a patron of the Novel Marketing Podcast, helping keep this podcast on the air. And uh, I really appreciate you and all the other patrons who help keep these episodes free and coming every week. And for those of you who can't afford to become a patron, if you still want to help the show, you can just share this episode with one author you think would find it helpful. Hello, this is Alex G. Zarate, author of Connections in Crimson. Listening to the Novel Marketing Podcast has helped me learn about the many promotional tools available, the book launch process, and most importantly, the need for patience along my writing journey. Thank you. You've been listening to Thomas Umstead Jr. on the Novel Marketing Podcast. To find the blog version of this episode or to get new episodes delivered to your phone automatically, visit authormedia.com. Thank you for listening, and live long and prosper.